This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversations. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Sandra Richter. She is the professor of biblical studies at Westmont College, a member of the Committee for Biblical Translation, and the author of several books, including The Epic of Eden. Sandra, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here, Andy. Now, I have to ask, is being a member of the Committee of Biblical Translation the equivalent of, you know, being at the Council of Laodicea? Because it sounds like really super (laughs) important. Um, for me, it feels like having made the all-stars. Um, you know, I spend so much of my career teaching Hebrew, so I'm basically teaching people uh, how to how to dribble, um, how to pass, how to hang on to the ball while they pass between the orange cones. Um, now I'm like out there on the field with uh, people who can do things that you and I only imagine. So yeah, it's tons of fun. 
And uh, it's, you know, it's the NIV. So the most broadly read Bible on the planet is what we're responsible for translating. So it's pretty cool. No pressure, right? No, yeah, no pressure. (laughs) Well, you can be sure that we move at the speed of molasses because um, no one is, no one is uh, interested in making a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your expertise and, and your passion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, give us a glimpse into the work of biblical translation. I mean, what does this look like on a maybe not day to day basis, month to month, year to year basis? Oh yeah. Well, when when the NIV first came out, uh, the original set of Titans who translated um, the Bible into the, like I said, the the first publication, the NIV they spent months and months behind closed doors. Uh, We're no longer working with a fresh translation. We're now uh, culling and uh, in many ways grooming an existing translation. So our job is to incorporate new research into what you get from your NIV. Um, We're also uh, committed to keeping the language fresh. So We've just been through a huge stylistic treatment. Are we going to do contractions? Are we going to lower the register of the voice? Do we lower the register when God's speaking or, you know, just when David and Abigail are having a conversation, all that sort of thing. So we meet for um, uh, two straight weeks uh, over the course of uh, the year, um, eight, 10 hour days. Everybody's sitting around the table. We have every known resource open um, and people hash it out. And Doug Moo right now, the uh, PhD New Testament prof at Wheaton College is the chair of the committee. And uh, his, his job is to ride the wild horses. <laughs> so that's what we do. And again, it's the highlight of my year. I love it. You know, I get it. Uh, I'm a history nerd. Um, I get why I love it and continue to dig into more and more history and really obscure history. Um, But for you, you know, when was the moment you decided you wanted to go into biblical studies? Oh, biblical studies. Well, um, I I actually started my career in ministry. Um, So I'm sure you can resonate with this. Uh, Just a a pressing need to uh, get out there and help, right? And in fact, my first appointment was at the Women's Induction Center in downtown Philadelphia. Um, I had become a Christian fairly recently, and somebody dropped the cross and the switchblade into my hands. And I I don't know who it was. I don't know how I got hold of it. Uh, I didn't come from a church background, so I didn't even know. I I didn't know 90% of what you and I now know about ministries that are out there and uh, accessible. So I'd never heard of anything like Teen Challenge. And when I read that book, the Holy Spirit just used it in my life and I couldn't sleep. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think about anything else. I was 17 and I went to one of the leaders in my little house church because I got saved in the Jesus movement. So I, I didn't even know the Protestants were out there. I was raised Catholic in a Jewish neighborhood. So I went uh, to her and I, I told her about the book. And 
and what was happening. And she said, oh, what you're experiencing is a call to ministry. And I said, okay, what's that? So she said, uh, well, it means you need to go to a Bible college and get trained. And I said, okay, what's that? And so she gave me the names of two uh, Christian colleges that trained for ministry. I applied to both of them. One lost my application. Um, I wound up in the other and, um, yeah, and spent uh, the first couple of years working in Team Challenge. Then I moved into pastoral ministry. I was in a denomination that wasn't really wild about women in leadership and certainly not in the pulpit. So it was not the greatest fit culturally. And about eight years in, uh, God made it really clear that I was going to turn uh, a corner and uh, head into the academy. So uh, I went into the academy at first, uh, really training to be a better pastor. And as that evolved, it became really clear that uh, my best gifts were in the classroom and this is my calling. And before I knew it, I was at Harvard University doing a PhD in Hebrew Bible. So there's, there's the crazy journey for you. And now you're responsible for translating the Bible. So <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've got a new book out, uh, The Steward of Eden, what scripture says mm -hmm. about the environment and why it matters. This book takes readers deeper into the biblical narrative, showing God's intention to create and maintain a sustainable world. You wrote, but we all know the story. Humanity rejected this perfect plan and chose autonomy instead. And because of the authority of humanity's God-given position within creation, all creation paid the price for humanity's choices. Um, why was now the time to write this book? Hmm. That's a great question. So this book has been percolating for a very long time, um, especially early in my thoughts about what career path I would pursue, I've always been deeply committed to, uh, should I call it the sanctity of creation, uh, the beauty and the glory that is represented on this planet and in the solar system. And I've always had a very deep empathy for uh, growing living things on this planet, be it a flora or fauna, honestly. So that's always been a part of who I am. Um, I hear God speak uh, at the edge of the ocean um, in the rustling of the leaves on a, a bright and crisp October morning. Um, so that's always been in there. Uh, when I went into ministry and I went into the academy, honestly, those concerns got crowded out. Uh, in many ways, I came from a tradition that thought that raccoons weren't terribly important, uh, but people really are. And I finally evolved myself in my own theology where I realized this is not an either or. Uh, <laughs> this is honoring God in our lives. And so uh, it began slowly for me. Um, I was at Asbury Theological Seminary. My first job as an Old Testament prof, and we hosted a kingdom conference which is something we did every year to help expose our seminarians to global issues. And this particular year, one of the profs in charge said that she wanted to deal with creation care. And because of the interest I had already demonstrated, I was obviously to her uh, the choice uh, to speak 
that morning in chapel. And so 2005, it was the first time I actually spoke on creation care as an issue of sanctification and an issue of honoring God from a pulpit. And oh, was that exciting and also terrifying because this is central Kentucky. You know, this is not a region of the country that is traditionally uh, environmental in uh, their mindset. But these folks were real Christians. They recognized the word of God. They recognized the uh, commands of our rule and faith and praxis. And that's how I approached the topic and uh, the house came down. So that was the beginning. And I was invited to speak a number of times on the topic in different settings. And so the material evolved. When I got to Wheaton College, I talked to biology prof into co-teaching a class on the Bible and biology, uh, stewardship of creation uh, from a scientific perspective. So we taught that maiden course, um, got a faith and learning grant for it, and so it evolved further. Wrote a couple of articles for my uh, academic uh, uh, organizations, the Institute of Biblical Research, which is our evangelical flagship uh, spoke there. And again, the people of God responded and dramatically. And so this has been evolving. Um, it's also been, um, you know, having to find its place between being a prof and a mom and all the other things I do. So it, it, came, it, it came to birth, let me say that. And how awful that it got released a month before COVID, but otherwise the timing seems to be pretty good. <laughs> you know, when I read the creation narrative where Adam and Eve are given dominion over creation, that seems strangely <laughs> egotistical. In fact, I would argue that this idea of human superiority is why we find ourselves in this downward uh, ecological trajectory. Um, mm -hmm. Let's use the creation narrative as a platform for you to walk us through maybe a rereading of these texts and its implications for today. Hmm. You do. You ask great questions. Um, thank you for that. All right. So the way I do biblical theology is that I always start with Eden, and I don't know any other way to do it. Uh, Eden is God's blueprint. It's God's original plan for humanity and humanity's relationship with creation. And I don't know anyone out there who honors the biblical text who would disagree with that. So when we start looking at that blueprint, as you say, we have got this paradigm that communicates loud and clear that God is the creator and he is the sovereign over his creation, but he has set up a steward. And that steward is commissioned to serve and protect. That's literally what the Hebrew term says um, when humanity is called. So as we look at that first week, uh, it's obvious we're looking at a seven-day structure. I mean, that, that could not escape the most casual of readers. That seven-day structure uh, is, in my opinion, and that of Augustine and thousands of biblical theologians who have gone before me, is answering the question, who's in charge here? So on day one, the uh, day and night are created. On day four, the sun is created to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. Day two, the waters above, that's the heavens, are created and uh, the waters below are the oceans. And then when you look at day five, it's parallel. 
the birds are created to fill the heavens and the fish to fill the oceans. And then day three, land and vegetation and land animals are created in day six. So there's a very clear structure here. As we get to the apex of the week, the climax of the week, we see that on day six, humanity, man and woman, are created to rule. Just like the sun was uh, created to rule the day and the moon the night, humanity is created to rule everything that's gone before him and her. And then on day seven, of course, Yahweh is enthroned over the creation, demonstrating that all of creation is under his authority and exists because of him. So here we have a creator who has commissioned a steward and has commanded him and her to serve and to protect. So that's the exact language as we take a look at the creation narrative, uh, in particular, Genesis 2.15. Uh, Yahweh Elohim took the human, put him into the garden of Eden to La'udah and to Lashumrah, which translates to tend it and to garden. So I make the argument in the book that the blueprint was that all of this amazing ecosphere was offered to humanity for their joy and their care and their supply, but it was offered to them under the authority of their creator. It's a land grant. And if your folks have read any of my stuff, they crashed into suzerain and vassal treaties left and right. Uh, what's happening in Eden is being offered to us like a suzerain vassal treaty. And the suzerain, who is Yahweh, is offering his vassal humanity a land grant. And if humanity does not care for that land grant, according to the dictates of the sovereign, the sovereign's going to take it back. And that's what's going on in Eden. And I will argue that's what's going on in Israel and that that relationship maintains through all of our story as those made in God's image, his stewards responsible to serve and to protect and always cognizant of the fact that none of this stuff is ours. It's all his. And if we don't deal with it accordingly, we will be held in account. Baptist Seminary of Kentucky offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Not only the Master of Divinity degree, but our Pastoral Care Certificate, Rural Ministry Certificate, and Flourish Workshops for lay leaders are offered virtually so that you can study where you are. BSK alumni are serving in many different capacities in and outside the church as ministers, counselors, missionaries, artists, musicians, nonprofit leaders, and many other creative career paths benefiting from theological education. As official seminary of National Baptist Convention of America International, BSK is committed to working for racial justice. All students are required to take Black and Womanist theology as part of a Black church studies thread woven throughout our curriculum. Over 80% of BSK students graduate with little to no additional debt occurred from their seminary experience. Our flexible block schedule approach, the ability to study where you are, and the plentiful scholarship opportunities allow students to focus on training for ministry without the burden of accruing massive debt. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit bsk.edu to learn more about our areas of emphasis or to apply for one of our programs. You wrote, the abuse of the land was forbidden, whether for the sake of economics or even for national defense. In God's government, human enterprise and aggression simply were not worthy excuses for wiping out the future productivity of the land. 
the precise, uh, the precious ecosystem that inhabited it or the humans whose lives relied on those systems. I wonder if you'd be mm-hmm. willing to, to name the most impactful systems causing environmental devastation today. Uh, I, the most impactful system is something we call greed. Honestly, if we were looking at a world in which humanity was simply taking what they need, uh, I don't think we would have an environmental crisis. Uh, in fact, I uh, quote Gus Speth toward the end of the book, who has been an environmental officer in all of the administrations since Jimmy Carter, and that's quite a while. And he states in his exit interview from his life career as uh, some sort of environmental protection officer that he thought that 30 years of good science <clears throat> would resolve our environmental crisis. And he has learned in the course of his career that the problem isn't actually science. The problem is morality. The problem is morality. And he turns to his interviewer and says, and we scientists don't know how to fix that. And I read that quote as someone who is committed to the church and committed to the people of God and who we're supposed to be. And all I hear are marching orders. Um, my response to that quote is, is put me in coach because the church does know how to deal with moral issues. So I would say that the bottom line is greed, uh, greed, which manifests in every governmental system on this planet and greed that has overshadowed every religious system on this planet. And I am grieved to say that the Christian church has done no better. And then if you want to spin into major corporations and the abuse of the marginalized and sweatshops and fracking and decimation of the whale population and turning the ocean into a landfill, we can talk about that too. But in my opinion, it all circles back to unregulated greed. The argument can be easily made that that many Christians buck environmentalism. It's obvious with the support of political figures and policies, especially from white evangelicals. Why do you think there's a, a tremendous theological disconnect between Christians and environmentalism? Yeah, a great question. And I answer that question, at least from my experience in the introduction of the book. I think there are three basic reasons that the church struggles. And let me say from the get-go that the church at its best is the moral compass of society. There are so many things that the community of Christ has accomplished that no other governmental or uh, charity-based organization has been able to touch. And this, this is our calling, this is our gift. But for some reason, we're paralyzed on this topic. And these are my three reasons. I think one certainly is politics and not kingdom politics, but American, uh, in particular, international politics. Uh, I think most of your listeners would concur that the traditional political allies of the church are not the traditional political allies of environmental concern. And there's this perception that if you are pro-life, it's assumed that you can't also be pro-environment. If you're a patriot, supposedly you can't also be a conservationist. Uh, To be more forthright in the United States, if you're an environmentalist, it's assumed you're a Democrat. 
and Democrats supposedly are not pro-church. So this is an issue. And uh, for the evangelical wing of the church in particular, there is this kind of base assumption that to be a Christian, you need to be a Republican. And since environmentalism falls in the Democratic uh, camp, it is guilty by association. And so my call to the church on that point is, hey, guys, we are citizens of another kingdom. And we respond to a king and a political system that has nothing to do with elephants or donkeys, red or blue. Uh, our job in all of our expressions of our faith is to stand out as a prophetic community that embraces the values of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God cannot be divided along party lines. So that's my first issue. And, and my great call to the church, guys, uh, taking care of the land grant that has been offered to you by your suzerain and Lord and honoring him in the process is not a matter of who you vote for behind the curtain. So that's one big issue. A second one uh, that I think is very powerful as well affects many matters of social concern. And that is that we, the Western majority voice, are largely sheltered from the impact of environmental degradation on the global community. We don't see it, especially as Americans. Uh, we don't see how unregulated use of land and water by big business is decimating the lives of the marginalized all over the planet. Uh, we have not witnessed the sterilization of the fertile fields of Punjab, India, uh, again, at the hands of unrestrained industrial agriculture and the social collapse that it has caused. Uh, we live safely in our suburbs, and we don't see what's happening in the Delta, for example, with the stripping of the land, first for cotton and now for soybean. Um, we've not stood on the shores of the Ganges and seen and smelled the results of unrelenting abuse of this incredibly important estuary. So we don't see it. And our highways are designed that we don't see mountaintop removal, coal mining in uh, West Virginia or Western Virginia or Eastern Kentucky. So since we don't see it, we don't think it's there. And we, the church, again, who are deeply invested in the lives of the marginalized, don't see that we're collapsing the lives of the marginalized by our use of creation. So that's the second one. And then the third one that might be the most impactful within our community is the theological posture taught by too many that the created order is bound only for destruction. And this idea that it's all going to burn anyway. So we need to be investing ourselves in what will last, what really matters, which is the conversion of souls. And I deal with that in the book as well. So I think those are the three big reasons that the church is paralyzed. I hope that I do a responsible job of dealing with all three of them in the book. Um, and my heart cry is that the church will pick up its mantle on this topic like it has on so many others. And that we're going to start leading in this conversation instead of sitting by silent. Well, let's take this a little deeper. You know, within the last several election cycles, global warming and environmental devastation have been on the ticket as candidates find themselves in polar opposite positions. And yet, white evangelicals overwhelmingly vote Republican, which tends to be a party that rejects the notion of global warming. 
Many, if not most, faithful Republican Christians vote passionately really about one issue, abortion. So why do you think conservative Christians uh, do not see the theological contradiction of anti-abortion and the catastrophic effects of environmental devastation? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, I'd, I'd love to hear why you don't think they see it. Uh, I, I do think part of it is we simply don't see the marginalized. Uh, I know for the students that I train, uh, for the congregational members, I've, I've had the privilege of discipling that as soon as you drop this population in um, the, gosh, uh, in the back country of Madagascar, which is now in like 90% deforested, and which is a statistic that completely blows my mind, and Madagascar, the most unique uh, ecosystem on the planet, is collapsing because of its environmental disaster. And they see that one out of every 10 women are dying, giving birth because of malnutrition, because of the degradation of the land. When they see the mortality rate of infants, which is catastrophic, uh, once Christians see that reality and someone helps them connect the dots, then all of a sudden they realize that being pro-life is not just about closing down abortion centers. Uh, the same is true of Haiti, the infrastructure of which right now, uh, between COVID and hurricanes, is in complete freefall. Uh, same story. Environmental degradation has left the average human unable to feed their children. And the mortality rate of uh, pregnancy and delivery is astronomical, largely due to malnutrition and uh, disease that is resulting from environmental degradation. So again, we just, we don't see it. We don't see it. Um, there's a fellow out there named Scott Sabin who is directing an organization called Plant with Purpose. And he started off his career actually investigating how uh, environmental degradation wipes out marginalized communities. And he over an entire career. He's now uh, situated down, down in San Diego. I had the privilege of talking to him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's committed his entire career to replanting native fauna because he is completely convinced that the restoration of native fauna is the best thing we can do for marginalized populations, which of course are the people whose babies are dying hand over fist. So Help me out, Andy. What do you think? Why don't people see this? I mean, that's why I have experts like you on so that you can give brilliant answers <laughs> like that so that, uh, you know, maybe I don't have to think for myself. So I can just regurgitate uh, what you have to say. No, it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting question to consider. Um, I'm not saying that because I'm complimenting myself for asking it, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if I have uh, one thing that I can point to. I do think that on the whole, many white evangelical Americans have fallen hook, line, and sinker for the marriage of politics and faith and get their marching orders uh, from, you know, from those that uh, can sway their perspective on things. 
And that's not to say that most people don't think for themselves, but I think a lot of people um, don't have time to think for themselves and maybe have not made that theological connection that I cannot say that I'm pro-life and yet go out and purchase clothes from an organization that took advantage of uh, underage workers, paying them less than a nickel uh, for, you know, picking cotton in a third world country, you know, um, mm -hmm. I just think a lot of people just don't have the time, nor maybe necessarily the interest because they don't see it, as you said earlier, uh, the ability to to make that theological connection, and understand that mm -hmm. there is a tremendous, tremendous disconnect uh, between uh, those things. Um, I don't know that that would maybe be my first stab at it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And I do think that once the community of faith sees the connection, uh, the response historically, uh, of course, is the response that's put more orphanages and hospitals on this planet than any other force that we know of. Uh, we know how to do this. Um, we know how to change the moral posture of a society. Uh, we just haven't become convinced yet that this is an issue we should be standing for. And again, circling back to the issue of convenience and comfort, and I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but greed. Uh, when we stand in the middle of a village in Haiti and we are surrounded by uh, dozens of kids who are literally hungry, I don't think there's anyone in your audience who wouldn't give their lunch away and wouldn't come back the next day to give it away again and again and again. For some reason, we don't see that when we are um, <laughs> driving SUVs the size of a tool shed <laughs> that use, um, you know, uh, seven, uh, get seven gallons a mile. Um, we don't see that when we buy a king's ransom worth of Ziploc bags. We don't see it when we turn over the furniture and clothing in our closet every nine months to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, we don't see it. So we need to see it. So uh, in addition to, to hosting a podcast, I also pastor University of Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, Exxon uh -huh. and Shell are the two primary mm -hmm. employers in our area. And while they've made mm -hmm. some strides towards environmental stewardship and clean renewable energy, they're one of the leading sources of, of revenue of mm -hmm. oil and gas. You know, that's just the reality. Yep. Can you imagine um, how it would be received if I got up on a Sunday and preached against the devastation, um, the devastating impact of, of fossil fuels? So, you know, what's your advice for local church pastors uh, who sees these alarming facts, understanding the Bible's mandate, and yet need to do spiritual uh, formation to congregants that maybe aren't there, or maybe, you know, their livelihood uh, depends mm -hmm. on working in these fields? Mm -hmm. No, and that is a fabulous question. And uh, really, there was a comment you had made earlier about oh, sweatshops, there it is, that ties into that as well, <clears throat> that um, sweatshops often are the only source of revenue in whatever village it is that's paying a nickel a garment or whatever the outrageous um, uh, reimbursement might be. And 
Uh, one of the case studies I do in the book, and by the way, I deal with uh, the theological issue at hand, which is, okay, what does the Bible tell us about creation care? What does the Bible tell us about the marginalized? Uh, what does it have to say about the widow and the orphan that we are starving out by our self-indulgent lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera? So that's always the first half of every chapter. And then the second half of every chapter is a case study. And the case studies are contemporary and painful. So one of them on sustainable land use is mountaintop removal coal mining, which would be a very good parallel to what's happening with the petroleum industry in Louisiana and Texas and all of these other states that uh, you and I both love. <clears throat> and in the midst of discussing mountaintop uh, coal mining, reality is that most of the locals are supportive of the coal industry because the coal industry puts food on their table. Now, for those whose houses have been blasted out of existence or who actually chose to hang on to their five acres of land and their five acres is now an island in a lunar landscape, or those whose children have been killed in their beds because of boulders that came crashing down off of uh, an MTR site um, in an illegal uh, removal of debris, and these stories are all real, or uh, villages whose entire uh, water system has been poisoned and half of their village is dying of related causes, uh, they're not as, as supportive because they've seen the impact. So uh, one fellow that I pursued in the midst of this, um, because he runs an organization uh, called Christians for the Mountains, is Alan Johnson. And he has moved to the region that he is preaching to and is uh, working hard to change the opinion of his community and is stuck in exactly the spot you're talking about. And he speaks of the local churches and what position they take on uh, MTRVF, mountaintop removal, valley fill coal mining. And he actually compares the issue to the civil rights movement back in the 60s. And he talks about pastors being caught in that horrible spot where they have got um, someone who supports their family by driving a coal truck sitting right next to a family whose uh, child has just passed away due to um, water source poisoning. And how is he going to preach to both of those families at the same time? And again, compares it to the champions of the civil rights movement who were caught in the same place. So what advice would I give those pastors? Um, my first, I'd, I'll give the hard advice first. The hard advice, and I used to say this to my seminarians all the time, remember who you work for. Because if you don't remember who you work for, by the time your ministry matures, you will either sell out or you will burn out. And I don't want to see either of those things happening to our frontline champions who are the pastors who duke it out in the trenches every day of their lives. So remember who you work for would be my first uh, set of advice. And keep in mind that the kingdom you are building is not the kingdom of this world. The second thing I would say, also a very hard piece of advice, is be strong and very courageous. Because the land lies ahead of you, but 
the battle is fierce and uh, this is going to take a while. Then the third thing I would say, and now I'm softening up, is you know your people and you know their hearts and you know that they will respond to scripture and to the real need of the real marginalized. So if you present this material to them through their rule of faith and praxis, there's a good chance they're going to be able to hear you. One time I was asked to present on humane animal husbandry in the middle of cattle country in Nebraska. And by the time I was finished, you could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium. And someone stood up and they asked me, a, a, you know, a, a stand your ground kind of question. You know, how dare you say this to us? Don't you know our economy depends on this stuff? And I said something about real farmers. And I, I truly believe to this day, the Holy Spirit really helped me. And I said something about how real farmers would never treat their animals this way. And I was speaking about industrial um, uh, uh, in, industrial uh, livestock rearing, um, what, what we would call mass confinement animal husbandry. And so when I said this bit, about real farmers would never treat their animals this way. All of the defenses in the room just dropped because the guys sitting in front of me were real farmers and they don't like what the industry is asking of them any more than I do. So the rule of faith and practice, and then my last thing would be show them. Show them what's happening. Have them partner with the missionaries on the Red Island Project. Have them partner with what's going on in Haiti. Show them what a landfill looks like in India or the mass suicide rates in Punjab because of the sterilization of the land. Um, take them out to the back country of Louisiana and uh, show them what's happening and let this be missions. And, and can I say that in, in my opinion, um, environmental missions is the next great wave. In the 19th century, it was hospitals and orphanages. In the 21st century, I think it's gonna be reforestation and rescuing vestuaries for the sake of the marginalized. It's obviously not just enough to talk about problems. Uh, we have enough people talking about problems and not enough people doing anything. Um, and yet I imagine for somebody listening to this, um, they're thinking, God, I mean, where do I, where do I begin? Mm. You know, so what's your advice to those listening to this, whether individuals or church leaders, about what they can practically do to take action on some of the things that you're laying out in this book theologically? Yeah, and a great question. Yeah, so my first response is that uh, learning to behave and live your life in an environmentally sustainable and responsible fashion is sanctification. And it's no different than any other life discipline that we lean into as Christians. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, every one of us is eager for that moment when we go forward at the altar call and we are all of a sudden completely delivered of whatever our besetting sin was. And I've seen that before and celebrate the reality that it can happen. But with this particular issue, um, it's going to be bit by bit, piece by piece, and we're going to lean into it and be transformed. Um, the conclusion of my book is entitled, 
how should we then live? And that's actually where I use the Gus Speth quote. Um, and again, he ends with this business. Let me read his last line. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. And again, I, as a leader in the Christian community, my response to that is, wait, wait, I do, I do. <laughs> um, so at the end of the book, I actually give uh, a list of possible responses that um, any, anyone can uh, begin to lean into. So Appendix A is entitled Resources for the Responsive Christian. And uh, what will the responsive uh, Christian do? And I, there are an array of these. And just like a, a devotional discipline or a diet or anything else, you can start with one. And the first thing I encourage everyone to do is get informed. Join a responsible environmental organization. Okay, so not some crazy radical who is busy uh, chaining their bodies to a thousand-year-old redwood, although they might not be as crazy as you might think. But uh, join a group, you know, uh, send in $30 and start getting the Sierra Club magazine on your front doorstep or the Nature Conservancy or the Humane Society or Defenders of Wildlife. Um, all of these are pretty responsible groups. Now, you're not going to agree with everything they write, but I'm going to guess you don't agree with everything the good housekeeping writes. But what this does is it gets the information coming in to your household and you have to surrender a small part of your own income in order to get that information coming into your world. So get informed. Uh, another piece of advice I would offer is vote your informed conscience. And man, are these conflicted days as it involves politics. And we are a country that is split 49-51, uh, almost in every state in the union. Uh, but we do have the power to vote. And sometimes voting at the local level is more powerful than voting at the national level, but we can vote. Uh, the other thing I would say, and perhaps more powerful than your political voice, is voting with your finances. Uh, there's one thing Americans understand, it's capitalism. And if we stop buying cans of tuna that aren't marked with a dolphin safe label, I'm speaking of an actual event 15, 20 years ago, uh, the commercial fisheries change their practices because they want to sell their tuna. So if you and I actually start reading labels at the grocery store and paying attention to what cage-free eggs are all about and looking for humanely raised on our meat products and stop buying every plastic item that is offered to us in our quick and easy uh, society, it's going to make a difference because uh, these industries want to sell. So I have a whole bunch of that listed in the back of the book. Then there are things you can do in your own house, just like I have to do in my daily practices of being a Christian. So at this point in my house, we compost. Of course we do. Um, we have our own little vegetable garden. And let me tell you that both I and my husband work full time. This is not outside the realm of possibility. Um, <clears throat> I have a clothesline, big surprise. And it's actually very pleasant. Um, in the suburbs of California, I can have chickens. And uh, uh, Greta and Buttercup and Lucy are keeping us in eggs during the laying season, and that's kind of fun. 
um, we plant native plants in our yard, which means we get native birds and we uh, use a lot less water and we don't have to use a bunch of chemicals to keep them alive. Um, so all that stuff is in the back of the book. Sorry, I could talk forever about it. But yes, they, a, a daily, what is it called? We know it, a long obedience in the same direction. Daily changes that stack up to making major changes. Well, for those that want to keep up to date with your work, where's the best place for them to go? <laughs> yeah, I am not um, a social media savant by, by any stretch. Uh, I have a faculty page at Westmont College, which is uh, where I, I hold the Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies. Uh, you can find me easily that way. Uh, there are a lot of podcasts with my name on it um, and articles as well. But I am afraid I'm, I'm not blogging or anything like that. That's, that's a crummy answer, isn't it? Well, I mean, no, you write books. I mean, what else do you really have to, to do besides that? So, so speaking of which, uh, we hope that you'll go out and purchase Stewards of Eden wherever books are sold. Uh, Sandra, thank you for challenging us to see the biblical mandate to love our neighbor, even the neighbor we cannot see, knowing that our choices, whether shopping for cheap products or ignoring the corporate greed that is polluting our environment, ultimately affects their well-being. Mm. You are welcome. And uh, thanks for giving this message a platform. Uh, yeah, we need a revolution and we need Christians at, at the front of, of the force here. So I hope that this time we've been able to spend together has has pricked some ears, pricked some consciences, and um, we'll be able to take some strides forward on this so important topic. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.